Amen. Thank you, worship team. Well, good morning. My name is Nathan. I'm the youth pastor here at Central Heights. And I'm the guy they get to preach when everyone else goes on vacation. Um, they never frame it that way, though. So Tim, our lead pastor, a couple months ago comes into the office and says, Nathan, we, we got this great opportunity for you. You know, just, we, you've been up once before, and we want to slide you into another slot, this opening we have. And just so turns out that that slot happens to be December 29th, the first Sunday after Christmas. Might I add that that other opportunity he mentioned earlier just so happened to be on August 4th, which was the August long weekend, noticing a trend. Um, at this point, I'm just going to assume that you'll see me again May long weekend. We'll, we'll see whether or not that's true. Hey, if you aren't aware, this is what we call our family service, which means we are welcoming the extra energy that comes with your kids being here. We want them here. We want the little noises, the little words of excitement that they bring. We want that. So please just allow them to be themselves here. We're not bothered by it. We're not bothered. Listen, believe it or not, there was a time in our history where Canada would have been considered a Christian nation. And what I mean by that is upwards of 90% of Canadians would have at least verbally affirmed a faith in Jesus. Does that mean genuine transformation for everyone? Probably not. But at the very least, Christian things would have been considered common. So to read the Bible as a family in your home, to have prayer in schools, the importance of gathering as a community on Sundays, and in fact, multiple times throughout the week, these things weren't only normal, they were actually expected. To put it a little bit differently, Christians and the church operated out of a place of power. So in the various spheres of Canadian life, whether that deals with the moral sphere or the political realm or the educational world, in these areas, oftentimes it was Christians who held influence. Now that's interesting and all, but the fascinating thing to me is that some of you in this room were actually alive for this. Because me, as a 23-year-old, who's actually too young even to be a millennial, I'm actually part of the next generation, Gen Z, I have no memory of this. I have not grown up in a Canada where I have any assumption that our political leaders are going to be following Jesus. I have no assumption that any of my friends or even some of my family are going to be following Jesus. What I have grown up with this is the recognition that if I want to end a conversation, all I have to do is mention that I am a Christian or especially a pastor, and then my introvert needs are satisfied for the rest of the day. I can just go be by myself. It works out really well for me. This new Canada has led people to try and re-understand the place of Jesus today. It leads people to reject things that were traditionally assumed by everyone. Traditional understandings of marriage and the family that are rejected. Understandings of science re-evaluated. Rejections of traditional forms of gender and sexuality. Rejecting the value of a book written 2,000 years ago. Rejecting the importance of institutions such as the church. The value of gathering on a Sunday morning. These things more and more are rejected by the entirety of our nation. 
Let me just say this. If you are in this room today and you would find yourself within that community who's rejected some of or maybe all of the things that I just mentioned, I just want to say thanks for being here. We here as a church, as a community, are, we are actually trying to figure out what it looks like to follow and obey Jesus in this cultural context. And so just, I'm really glad that you're here with us as we explore what this time means for our day. And the way that we actually go about exploring that is through the Bible, what we believe to be God's word, containing God's great story of his relationship with humanity. We believe it's full of wisdom. We believe it shows truth. We believe that in it, is actually contained the story of Jesus, the path to life. And we look to it to understand our present cultural moment. So today, we find ourselves in a place where our faith feels like it puts us on the fringes. And what we see in the Bible is when people found themselves in a similar situation, the image they turned to was exile. The image of a displaced people, a minority group in a different dominant culture, this image gave great truth and value to people who found themselves in a situation similar to ours. So to explore this idea today, we turn to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 17. If you have a Bible or a device, please turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 to 17. And I'm just going to begin by reading verses 11 and 12 here. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners, that is, as wanderers and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. That is, keep your conduct among those who don't follow Jesus honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Well, listen, there's two points that I want to drive home from these first two verses. Second one I think is more important. First one I think is more easily apparent. First point is this. Exile requires personal attention. Let me show you what I mean. So Peter uses this language. He tells us that Christians, the early Christians, were being spoken against as evildoers. And we can actually look to the literature of the day beyond the Bible to figure out what those sort of things looked like. Scholar Eugene Boring gives us a little bit of insight into it. Their religious convictions made them subject to the charge of antisocial behavior or worse. Atheism, hatred of humanity, treason, Lack of patriotism. Now, first of all, that last name has got to be one of the most unfortunate last names, especially for someone who reads books for a living. Hi, what's your name? I'm Mr. Boring. What's your name? I mean, come on. And yet, it is a last name that is both unique and memorable, which is a lot more than can be said for all you Mennonites in the room. <laughs> oh, Stepping on toes already. Might not be back May long weekend after all. <laughs> you know what's interesting about this is I actually feel like a lot of these things resonate not just with Christians back then, but with Christians today. So the charge of atheism, this spiritual difference from the time of their day. In that era, it was a season of multiple gods, a multitude of gods. And so the Christian belief of there being one true God stood against the spiritual beliefs of that day. 
antisocial behavior, something about the way Christians lived in that day set aside certain community practices that they didn't want to be involved with, and so they were considered antisocial. Treason, lack of patriotism. The early Christians held beliefs that were actually opposed to the political authorities of their day. Hatred of humanity. You Christians might speak of love and grace and mercy, but in reality, you are full of hate, full of malice, perhaps even bigots. It's for these reasons that Peter talks about a war being waged against our souls, against who we are as people. He talks about having to abstain from the passions of the flesh because what Peter is trying to say is there is no neutral ground when you find yourself in exile. Everything around you is pulling at who you are as a person. It's waging war against your soul. It's trying to pull you away from Jesus. There might have been a day in Canadian history where you could show up to church on a Sunday and maybe do a community group one other time every other month, and you would still have enough messages throughout your life that would in general point you to Jesus. That time is no longer here. If the extent of your involvement with Jesus is a Sunday morning, the amount of messaging that is actually opposed to Jesus will draw you away. The exile requires personal attention because the extent of the messaging that's opposed to Jesus far outweighs that that is for Jesus. As a youth pastor, I am very familiar with this. Canadian research shows that Two-thirds of adolescents who grew up in the church will actually leave the church once they become young adults. And further, 50% of those will walk away from their faith altogether. That is the nature of a context where Christians find themselves in exile, of a place that there is no longer neutral ground, where there is a war being waged against our souls, who we are as people pulling us away from Jesus. The crazy thing to me is this isn't even Peter's main concern. He completely acknowledges, yeah, there's, there's stuff going on. You have to be aware. This takes personal attention, but he sees something even bigger. According to Peter, exile provides an opportunity. At the end of verse 12, it pushes. So Peter's saying, keep your conduct among those who don't follow Jesus honorable so that when they don't, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, hear this, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Peter's great hope is for, it's consistent throughout the entire New Testament, the fact that Jesus is going to return one day. And what Peter is proclaiming is something about the way you are living right now. This exile state is actually going to give you an opportunity for other people to come to know and find life in Jesus. See, Peter acknowledges the need for preservation, but he ultimately pushes us to say this is an opportunity for transformation. And the way he gets there is something that is done throughout the entire New Testament. It's an image that is founded in Jesus himself that he's going to pull from. The image is this. Jesus presents submission as the ideal for his followers. Let me show you how Peter gets there. So in verse 13 we read, Be subject for the Lord's sake 
to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Peter here is dealing with a Roman emperor, this Caesar, who was actually claiming divine authority. They themselves were a god worthy of being worshipped. Peter's very intentional here. He never throughout his entire letter attributes the word Lord to any Roman emperor. That title is reserved for the one true king, for Jesus, for God himself. And yet, in the face of this emperor claiming divine authority, Peter says, be subject to him for the Lord's sake. Isn't that fascinating? He doesn't, he doesn't push against it. He actually enters into this place saying, submission is the path forward in the state that you find yourselves in. Now, scholars will point to the fact that Peter is overall fairly optimistic about the state of the government. Read at the end of verse 14 that the governors are sent by the emperor to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. Overall, Peter believes that if you are generally being a good person, the government will not penalize for you, penalize you. And the general idea might be that when times change, Peter might no longer be saying this. In Peter's day, people might have, Christians might have been dealing with ostracism and false accusation, but persecution was not actually present. Would it change? Would Peter's response change if it did? Well, a few years down the road, the emperor of the day, Caesar Nero, issues the first ever state-sponsored persecution of Christians. For the first time, the state is now allowed to persecute Christians. Christians find themselves suffering, perhaps even dying because of their beliefs. Does their response change? Well, we have in the book of Revelation, a book filled with metaphors and image, a book that actually deals with this topic of what it means to follow Jesus in a time when you are suffering, when you are persecuted, where you might actually die because of your belief. And it's full of these images, and it's a time for them in a hopeless situation to actually find hope. And there's one dominant image throughout the entire book that gives these people hope. And it's not a military general. It's not a political authority. The dominant image that gives them hope is a slaughtered lamb. It's the image of the Son of God who possessed all authority and power and yet willingly entered weakness and submission. Who despite being innocent, allowed himself to be murdered. The foundation of the Christian belief is that in Jesus' weakness and submission, the transformation of the world comes. In his sacrifice, evil was defeated. Death was conquered. Submission is the ideal for Jesus' followers. Now, I, I don't think this, personally for me, this doesn't sit easy. I want to be in a place of public influence. I want to make sure that Canadian culture generally aligns with Jesus. I want public opinion to be in alignment with what I believe. Here's what one scholar, Mark Sayers, has to say about that concept. If public opinion shifts into our favor 
then the discomfort we feel and the lack of belonging we experience will fade. We will be at home in the world. Disciples, however, never feel at home in the world. See, the reality of living in exile is actually intentionally entering into weakness and submission as the path forward. This has been consistent throughout God's dealings with humanity, that he chooses weakness and submission for the sake of transformation. In fact, Peter will use the language of this being the will of God. That's where he goes in verse 15. For this is the will of God. That by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Now, I acknowledge pretty strong language at the end there. Putting to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Peter does have this ultimate hope where people will be in alignment under the banner of Jesus. But he says it does not come through stomping on other voices. Through having stronger or louder arguments through engaging in a culture war. He says it happens by doing good. This concept of doing good or good deeds, good work, something that Peter's been building off of. Some scholars might want to translate it beautiful deeds or beautiful works. However you translate it, the concept is this. Public actions that are recognizably appealing. Let me give you a story of this. I was just back home in Alberta for the Christmas break and grabbed coffee with a childhood friend of mine who, at certain points, he would have been considered my best friend, I would say. And he grew up in the church like me, but has since rejected it, walked away from it, wants nothing to do with it, has embodied this sort of persona of being someone who just wants to deconstruct everything, to get rid of authority structures, to get rid of Christianity as a whole, just deconstruct it and enter into that world. And so I go for coffee with him. And I don't engage in a way of just shouting at him or arguing with him or trying to prove him wrong. I just sit and I listen and I ask questions. And eventually I'm brought to a point of saying, is there anything about what Jesus is doing in my life that could actually be considered beautiful to him? So I talk about how about a month from now with youth and young adults, we're going to be actually doing a lecture on deconstruction itself. We believe it's a cultural phenomenon that we as a church need to address because otherwise this, cult, this war being waged against our souls, we won't even be aware of it. And so we're dealing with it. And so I tell them about this and I'm like, hey, you, you're the master on this topic. Like, help me understand. I, like, I'm really clear. The landing points I have are very different from his, but his eyes just light up. And so we start talking about what's going on and what it means to deconstruct something. And I as we engage in this conversation, his heart softens, and I actually find a place where I'm able to say this to him. Here's my landing space. Here's the end of the lecture. I have watched so many people enter this road of rejecting all forms of authority and tradition, and what I can say with almost unanimous decision is that they leave that place after rejecting Jesus, leave feeling more bitter, more angry, more confused, feeling more anxious, feeling less at peace, less patient, less gracious, less loving, less joyful. Here's his response. I think you're right. That's my story. That didn't come because I was able to argue better. 
See, Peter presents this ideal. If we're seeking transformation, it happens this way. Transformation comes not through silencing other voices, but by revealing that Jesus is better than anything. It's not about shouting louder. It's not about arguing more defiantly. It's about sitting with people, being present with people, and proclaiming the beauty of Jesus in ways that are tangible to them and they understand. So then the question becomes, what sort of things are required to actually proclaim beauty? I actually think there's a really specific area we need to press into to actually proclaim the profound reality of Jesus. And I think it has to do with this idea of freedom. It's where Peter takes us next. In verse 16, it says this, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants, that is, as slaves of God. First off, Peter is engaging with a competing definition of freedom. Peter acknowledges that there's something about the way you understand freedom that could actually lead you into what he says is evil. This concept of evil being something that is not in God's intended plans for humanity. And because it's not how he created us to live, the reality is that for Peter, the wrong understanding of freedom prevents human flourishing. It prevents finding the true life that God intends for his people. By misunderstanding freedom, you are actually running away from true life. The other second thing that is just staggering to me, Peter equates freedom with slavery. Did you notice that? Live as people who are free. Not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as slaves of God. Being free means being a slave. How is that possible? I think it's because, at least for myself, and I believe for perhaps all of us in this room, we too may have a misunderstanding of what it means to be free. And I think that misunderstanding actually prevents us from finding true life. See, the biblical understanding of freedom is that at one point you are under a, an oppressive, evil ruler, and you have been saved from that ruler to now live under a perfect master who is Jesus. The current cultural context we find ourselves in defines freedom as options, as choice, as opportunity, and as autonomy. It's run by such cultural slogans that we have all set ourselves, such things as whatever you set your mind to, you can do it. You can be whoever you want to be, your dreams. You can do whatever you want. The world is your oyster. We push towards this technological advancement with greater and greater opportunities, promising more and more life. And so here's what happens. People find themselves, oh my goodness, I, I'm going to go get an education because I'm able to do that. And I need to make sure that it's financially viable, but also something that I'm passionate about. And then eventually I'm going to enter the workforce, but again, I need to make sure it's something that I'm passionate about, but also financially viable. And then I'm going to go make sure that I travel the world, though. So I don't want to do all this too soon because I need to travel the world, but I want to make sure I stay rooted because I have friends and family here. Oh, family, I need to make sure that I get a family going on. Okay, I, who, 
who am I gonna, who am I gonna date? I need to find a partner, okay. But, but not too quick, ease in. I wanna make sure that I have my own freedom. Oh, by the way, I also want to eat healthier and exercise more and somehow within all of this, sleep more and also invest more and, and retire sooner, but also, I don't, I don't know, how do I do it all? I, so the worst of it is actually when you become a new parent and then all of a sudden everyone has all these opinions of what you're supposed to do of like, no, you have to, you have to nurse them this way, make sure they wear this kind of clothing. You know what, I'm, I, just to be clear, like not speaking from personal experience here. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm like the kind of guy who tries to avoid eye contact, contact when a parent's trying to get you to hold their baby, like, and then they give it to me and I like try and look natural, but I'm like so stiff, like, you okay? Oh yeah, like do this all the time, you know? And what, what, from what I've been told, parents are just wanting a break. Like, you could hold their baby upside down. They don't care. Like, they're just... <laughs> Can you tell? I have no experience in what I'm doing. <laughs> no, you see, this society that promises opportunity seems appealing at first, and that yet as you get into it, you feel overwhelmed. Yeah, technological advancement, we are progressing at a rate unforeseen in human history. The emotional well-being of people has not changed. In fact, it's getting worse. Mental illness has skyrocketed. The sense of connection amongst people is plummeting. People feel overwhelmed, feel too busy. This is not a society that is actually finding true life. I would go so far as to say that the Western experiment of having freedom to find its choice and opportunity has failed. There needs to be a different understanding of freedom. It needs to be rooted in slavery to Jesus. And let me put it in a little bit different way so that it comes clear. In a world that rejects Jesus, the key ingredient for both preservation and transformation is self-denial. Self-denial is the posture of something that just seems so crazy to this world, where you want to be able to do whatever you can, whatever life gives you, just do it. Jesus would say that's not the path to true life. The path to true life is actually limiting your own opportunities, limiting your own autonomy, your choices, and to actually submit to Jesus. This is the way that you preserve yourself in a society of exile. It's also, according to Peter, the way in which you transform the world. Peter has an idea here that by proclaiming this concept of freedom and slavery, by proclaiming self-denial as the way to true life, other people will come to know life in Jesus. Here's what that would look like if we were to start proclaiming things along those lines. In a world that promises unlimited sexual freedom, the church would say to people of every single sexual orientation that God's plans for you might not involve sexual fulfillment. It might involve singleness. And that's okay. Because life in Jesus is infinitely greater. In a world that tells you to work more, to work harder, to seek to rise the corporate ladder, put in those extra hours, Jesus would say, you might not get that promotion. You might not have as much invested as you think you're supposed to 
You might not have the house you think you should. And that's okay. Because true freedom's not found in those things. True freedom is found in margins, in limits, in obedience to Jesus, in self-denial of laying those things down. Life will be infinitely better than it would be if you pursued that, if you pursued financial prosperity. For myself, for various times, with various mentors, I've questioned the importance of gathering in a church, of saying, well, I, I can get a better sermon online. Worship doesn't really do it for me. This community piece, I can hang out with friends on the side. And here's what my mentor said to me. Nathan, you might actually be right, but that's not the point. The point is this. When you gather with a church you are a living proclamation of the fact that it's not about you. See, the church is not ultimately a place where you can find these fulfilling emotional rushes. Sometimes those happen and it's great, but if I'm to tell someone or try to invite someone to church, it's not because I'm saying you're going to have the greatest experience of your life. Church is a place where a community of people come together to deny themselves, to lift Jesus up, to submit and to surrender, to enter into the limitations and the boundaries that slavery to Jesus actually entails. This is the path of transformation in our world. Self-denial. So hear this. There is a day that's coming when the Western world will raise the banner of Jesus high, but it's not going to be because Christian celebrities are popping up. It's not going to be because Christians find themselves in political power and influence. It's not going to be because Christians have the greatest communicators or the strategists or whatever it is. It's not going to be because of any of those things. When the Western world raises the banner of Jesus high, it will be because of people who deny themselves pick up their cross and follow their king. Who choose self-denial as the path forward. Who live with people in the broken world that we are in and yet point to the beauty of Jesus and say, I am willing to submit and to surrender all that I have because of the beauty that Jesus offers. That is the path to preservation and transformation. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the gift of your son, Jesus, who willingly laid himself down, who actually modeled what it means to surrender, to submit, to choose the path of weakness, and in so doing, in his sacrifice, transformed the world, defeated evil, conquered death. This is your chosen way, God. And I pray that you would teach every single one of us in this room that this is actually the path to true life. Despite what the world around us, what our friends, what even ourselves, what we might be telling ourselves, God, you are ultimately the one who knows where life is found and you say it is found in submission to Jesus, in self-denial, setting our desires down. God, I pray that this church, not just, and not just Central Heights, but your church, your global church would just have this great movement of people who are willing to pick up their cross and follow their king. We pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.